What is up, Next Level fam? Thank you so much for joining our first ever podcast episode. I'm your host, Alexis Smith, and today we're talking about vaccines and how they work. Today I have with me Next Level Urgent Care's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Robin Trailer. Dr. Trailer, welcome. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for welcoming me, Alexis. I am well today. I hope that you are well. I am. Thank you so much for joining us. I know we have obviously a lot to cover in a short period of time, so I figured we'll just dive right into it. Today, Dr. Trailer will be helping us to better understand vaccines and how they work. Um, This is obviously a subject that has sparked some controversy, especially in the last few years, and even more so now with the release of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I'd love for us to just start from the beginning, the history of vaccines, how did vaccines come to be? Well, Alexis, this is a very complicated answer. And I didn't realize when I was researching this topic just how controversial it is. So the lone genius phenomenon myth is what most of us learn, uh, which is that in the year 1796, there was an English physician Um, named Dr. Edward Jenner, who inoculated a local milkmaid against the cowpox virus, which was a big problem in their area at the time. I imagine they're like around London. And so he successfully inoculated this milkmaid, but because it was new in the area, there was a significant amount of resistance among like the scientific community, Mm -hmm. other physicians, definitely the religious community had their doubts. It was thought at the time that people are made more righteous through suffering and sickness. And so he met a lot of resistance, but in five short years, about 100,000 people had been uh, vaccinated against the cowpox virus. He was awarded originality. He literally coined the phrase vaccination. And because he was granted that um, original idea uh, right, he was given a lot of money. He was published in local journals. He was given about 30,000 pounds, which in today's money is $620,000. So, you know, he, he, he fought to be credited with the originality and he won that and, and he went down in history as the first guy to ever discover vaccines. The truth about vaccination and inoculation, Alexis, is that it had actually been practiced in Asia and Africa for hundreds of years. In fact, there were medical journals discovered dating back to the mid um, 1500s in which uh, physicians and scientists in Asia discussed the process of inoculation, literally taking um, material from an actively infected person, maybe like rupturing a pustule or something, and then transferring that material into the tissue of a healthy person uh, so that that healthy person's immune system could mount a response and then they would be protected against uh, whatever the culprit was at the time. Uh, I also discovered that in the new world, um, in what would later be known as America, but back then was like, you know, the 13 colonies in the Boston area, um, I want you to imagine that 
there was a smallpox outbreak in and around the year like 1720. Well, 14 years before that in 1706, an enslaved man named Onesimus, who had been captured and brought over to the New World uh, from West Africa, educated his master, our local minister, uh, Mather, who was a Harvard grad, uh, who was uh, renowned, uh, in fact, who was famous for being involved in the Salem witch trials. Well, you know, the enslaved man teaches the master about inoculation and tells him, I'm immune to smallpox. I'm not going to get that because I was inoculated when I was a kid. He teaches it to his master and some other local physicians so that by the time there was a smallpox outbreak in the New World, in the, in the Boston colony, um, about 12,000 people had been inoculated against the disease. The mortality wow. rate, yes, incredible. The mortality rate of smallpox at the time was about 30%, which means three in 10 people who caught the virus perished. But because of uh, Onesimus teaching this to the uh, scientific community in the new world, the mortality rate was reduced to 2%, 2%. Uh, in Boston at the time, yes. So I thought that that was a very interesting um, fact about, you know, inoculation and discovery. And so, you know, that was the year 1721. Dr. Jenner didn't even come around um, uh, talking about vaccination until the late 1700s. So, um, you know, the, the, and while Dr. Jenner is brilliant and, and did a great thing, uh, the truth is that the, the actual practice of the inoculation and transferring of, you know, the, the infected material into a healthy individual um, has been going on for a very, very long time. I mean, even at present, there is fear of the unknown, especially when it comes to new science and vaccines. I can't even imagine being amongst the first in the 1700s to test out a vaccine. Were these vaccines mandated or was it just about educating the public? Really, it was about educating the public and it, it took a lot to convince people. That minister that I told you about, Minister Mather, he had his house bombed. Uh, because he was talking about uh, inoculating people. There, there were a lot of skeptics out there and there were plenty of people who were downright resistant to the idea of transferring that infected material from a sick person into a healthy person. So um, the point is that you know the, the struggle was real even back then because people didn't understand the science. Right. Um, and so people fear what they don't understand and what they don't know. We've seen evidence of that today in the in the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And so I hope that as we have more conversations about the science, more conversations about the benefits of the, the research and about what the real data shows, uh, that we can help people overcome their fears and, and really um, you know, adopt the, the positive changes that are happening. Well, absolutely. And speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the mRNA vaccine that is the COVID-19 vaccine that we're seeing now and more traditional vaccines that we've had in the past, such as flu, measles, and chickenpox? Sure. Um, so I like to discuss the history, uh, as you well know from my first answer. And so I just want to credit 
um, a woman scientist, uh, Dr. Caitlin Carico, um, who's out of Hungary, but who immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. And um, she studied mRNA vaccines. Uh, she, she studied mRNA technology, okay? But it took a while for the scientific community to accept uh, mRNA as a vector for for vaccination. And so her idea was largely rejected. She applied for many grants. She was she was denied those grants. Uh, eventually, she was demoted um, at her position at University of Pennsylvania. Well, um, fast forward several years and the method of utilizing the synthetic mRNA um, substance that she discovered is exactly what Pfizer and Moderna are leaning on in their uh, vaccines. Um, in fact, uh, not, not only has she been vindicated, but really um, she is being discussed as a possible uh, Nobel Prize recipient. And so um, I just wanted to, to highlight the incredible uh, discovery uh, that, that she uh, landed upon um, from her years of work. And so mRNA is a recipe. I tell people all the time, Alexis, that um, mRNA is a recipe for the spike protein on the coronavirus. So the, the recipe tells us how to make the protein that's found on the surface of the virus. And then if our bodies can recognize that protein, we can fight it off and hopefully not become infected. Um, so that's, that's the mRNA technology. Other technologies include uh, live attenuated vaccines. Um, attenuated is just another way of saying weakened. So some of those uh, live but weakened vaccines include the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine that, that babies get, uh, rotavirus vaccine, the smallpox, chickenpox, uh, and yellow fever vaccines are all versions of that. Um, because those vaccines contain a small amount of the weakened virus, uh, doctors talk to patients about like, you know, who has a, like immunocompromise, um, who may experience a bigger vaccine response when they receive those vaccines. Right. Um, other uh, types of vaccines include the inactivated vaccines like our modern day flu shot or the hepatitis A shot, polio and rabies. And essentially these are the killed versions of the vaccine, okay, or, or sorry, the killed version of those germs. Um, and so they, they put that inside of uh, a, a vector and put it into our arms and our, our bodies will recognize that virus, mount an immune response, and then we can, you know, deflect any uh, further exposure when we're out in the uh, community. There are also some very interesting uh, toxoid vaccines. So some bacteria emit like harmful toxins. And so toxoid vaccines uh, will have a little bit of the toxin in it that's made by the germ so that we are able to mount an immune response against that toxic material. Okay, so um, common toxoid vaccines include the diphtheria vaccine, uh, the tetanus vaccine. Um, there are also um, 
subunit or recombinant polysaccharide conjugate vaccines. What in the world is that doctor talking about? <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> those are vaccines that use specific pieces of a germ, like it's protein, um, sugar, or like the casing around uh, the bacteria or the virus, okay? So because they give you a little piece of the offending agent, they will give you a very strong immune response. So examples of those include the um, Haemophilus influenza B, also known as Hib. There's hepatitis V, um, there's the human papillomavirus, uh, HPV vaccine, there's whooping cough, uh, the, the pneumococcal vaccine, which, which helps us fight uh, pneumonia, the meningitis vaccine, and shingles vaccines are, are all examples of that. So uh, the punchline is there's so many different ways uh, that you can um, store a vaccine and, and safely give it to um, people in the public. If you are a person like me who's had all their shots, you've probably had just about every version of a vaccine that you can get. Well, and I think that this is all hopefully very reassuring to our audience members, especially those that are a little bit nervous about the COVID vaccine, because one, the mRNA technology, it's not a new technology. It's something we've been studying since, you know, back in the 1900s and late 1900s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also not a vaccine that injects the actual COVID-19 virus into your body. So when we're talking about mRNA, this is, like you said, a blueprint, a recipe for our DNA to recognize it um, and, and develop an immuno response. And so we don't have to worry so much about uh, contracting COVID from this vaccine as some people are fearful. Right, absolutely. You know, again, thank goodness for the scientific process. And so we decide that vaccines and drugs and food are safe because we study them, we study the data, and there's a threshold that has to be met for safety. And so I, I have a lot of faith in the uh, safety and in the efficacy of the vaccines that we have available today. Right. So when we're talking about vaccinating our population, especially in the midst of a pandemic, and we're trying to stop the spread as quickly as possible, what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated for optimal effectiveness? Well, so what you're talking about is herd immunity, and it's different for each pathogen. Um, so let me just talk about what herd immunity actually is. It's it's that number um, when, that we decide that a large part of the population is immune and that enough people are resistant to the cause of the disease that it basically has nowhere to go and that it can't infect other people. Um, so in, in the scientific community, we really depend on herd immunity to, to protect society. Definitely the most vulnerable among us, the immunocompromised like our friends and family um, on chemotherapy who have suppressed immune systems. Um, if we have friends and family with uh, uh, HIV AIDS, people who take medicines to suppress their immune system, people with autoimmune disease like lupus or psoriasis or any other kind of autoimmunity, um, they count on us to stay healthy so that they don't get sick. Obviously our babies, um, babies don't have any real immunity until they're about six months old. 
Um, so to keep the, the youngest among us from getting ill, we, we count on the population to get vaccinated. Um, and so, like I said, you know, like that herd immunity threshold really depends on the virulence of the of the culprit that we're talking about. Um, for coronavirus, it's somewhere between 50 and 67 percent. Um, so I, you know, I, I would use the higher number, um, you know, closer to like 70% of people would need to be vaccinated before we actually met that threshold um, and could prevent the spread of disease uh, among each other. We talk about vaccinating as many people as possible, but would you ever recommend to someone that they shouldn't get a vaccine for any reason? You know, that's a great question. I have to tell you honestly, I never met a person who shouldn't get a vaccine. Um, in, in my very long career in medicine, and as you know, I'm a very old lady, <laughs> um, I, I haven't met a patient who, who really shouldn't be immunized. Um, the, the ones who shouldn't get vaccines are the ones who have a prior bad reaction to vaccines and so i get the question a lot well you know what's in that shot does it have egg in it does it have you know some some formaldehyde in it does it have whatever in Mm -hmm. it you know i could be allergic to that thing um and and while that is true a lot of work has been done to uh reduce like allergens known allergens um and those kinds of materials being used in vaccines so almost everybody can get vaccinated against everything um but yes you know like people who've had bad reaction to vaccines in the past probably shouldn't get it um i tell all patients talk to your doctor talk to your doctor about your allergies if your doctor has concerns about what you're allergic to um and you know what they're thinking about vaccinating against you can have a conversation about that um, but in my career, I have never denied a person a shot. And thank goodness I've never met a patient who had a bad reaction to a vaccine. Great. So what are some examples of vaccines everyone needs to be keeping up with annually, every five years, et cetera? Well, so let's start talking about what's required for school, um, which, you know, hopefully, you know, most people in society have been through like our, our school systems. I know certainly the public schools require that all kids have the uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis uh, vaccines, which are given to infants. Um, And then also the polio vaccines, the uh, MMR, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, There's a hepatitis B series that's given when you're young, uh, varicella, uh, meningitis kids will get um, when they get a little bit older, and then also the hepatitis A vaccine is now on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a good amount uh, that we are vaccinating, that we're vaccinating against in society. Um, and I can tell you, I, I, I'm so fortunate, I really haven't ever had to uh, treat like an, an active polio case. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, when when some communities get lax on their vaccines, uh, you hear about little spikes of um, like measles. Uh, there was a measles outbreak uh, in the northwest uh, corner of the United States a couple of 
years ago, um, but really doctors have to kind of um, hold the line on this and, and uh, really push the issue uh, to make sure that our kids are getting vaccinated. So, you know, it's required for school, it's required for travel um, to some countries. And so um, for anyone who's here in the United States, um, I invite you to check out um, the website CDC, uh, click on travel, and it will tell you the immunizations that are required for different countries around the globe. Uh, today I looked up, for instance, um, you know, Mexico, if I were trying to Mexico, traveling to Mexico, it's recommended that I get vaccinated against um, hepatitis A and uh, typhoid. Um, some people who go south of the Texas border also um, try to get vaccinated against like yellow fever. Um, so there, you know, there are other vaccines that are given outside of the United States um, that, you know, people can look into if they're going to travel. Healthcare workers uh, are required to be immunized against hepatitis B. Getting a flu shot annually is pretty standard mm -hmm. um, and a requirement for healthcare workers. And so we do have a precedent for uh, requiring vaccinations in society. Um, I, I'm certainly pro-vaccine and uh, look forward to the day when uh, we are mandating even the uh, COVID vaccine um, for, for people in society and for travelers. That may or may not be something that's required uh, long term, but I think you know, acutely while we are still um, dealing with the pandemic globally, it's, it's probably something that needs to happen to get the, uh, to get the plague under control. For our adults in the audience that are listening right now, they may have taken a deep sigh of relief when you mentioned uh, vaccines for kids and also for healthcare workers. But for our non-healthcare workers, adults still do need to get vaccine. We talk about getting the flu shot annually. Are there any other vaccines that they may need to look forward to or prioritize in their future? Absolutely, Alexis. Adults should receive boosters of some childhood vaccines. For instance, everybody needs a tetanus shot once a decade. If there's gonna be a new baby in the house, we recommend that people get a pertussis booster. Um, when you are around 50 years old, your doctor's gonna talk to you about the shingles vaccine. And around age 65, doctors talk to their patients about the pneumonia vaccine. So we continue to vaccinate throughout our lives. Uh, if you happen to be an adult in healthcare, for sure, you're gonna get that uh, annual flu shot and now maybe even an annual uh, coronavirus vaccine. So. It's, it's not something that ever really stops. Um, in fact, even if you're not a healthcare worker, but you are older and have what we call senile immunity. So imagine you're over 80, over 85 years old, your immune system might not work as quickly as it used to when you were young. We are recommending that elderly populations get a flu shot uh, every year, just like healthcare workers do. So. Yes, uh, vaccination is something that should continue for our whole lives. And again, the point is to keep us healthy. It's to prolong life, uh, to help us enjoy our days. And so I, I hope that everyone listening will, will talk to their doctor about what vaccines they require every year. When we talk about health, a lot of people are veering away from vaccines because they hear that they may contain toxic substances such as formaldehyde. But really many of these substances that maybe toxic in large quantities are actually naturally occurring substances in our bodies, correct? 
Absolutely, Alexis. What you say is true. So many of the so-called toxins are actually naturally occurring materials that are found in our diets. We get them out of the soil and from the foods that we eat. So let's let's talk about them. The, the hot one when I was being trained as a young doctor was thimerosal. Uh, people thought that thimerosal, which is uh, known as ethyl mercury around the scientific community, people thought that substance caused autism. And so the thought was that if you give your kid the MMR vaccine that they use that the Marisol as an ingredient and by the time your kid turns three years old, they have autism. So don't give them the MMR vaccine. And some very prominent people were in the news and were on talk shows talking about the dangers of vaccinating their kids. Uh, maybe their own child had autism and they were really trying to warn off uh, or, 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 you know, alert larger society about the dangers of vaccines. But as it turns out, that never was true. Uh, the ethyl mercury ingredient that is that, that was used as a preservative in vaccines uh, was metabolized and essentially disintegrated in the body and went away. There was never any link proven between uh, the Marisol and autism. Still, because it had such a negative uh, connotation, uh, public health agencies and vaccine manufacturers just quit using it. In 1999, they just took it out of all the vaccines. And so today, except for our uh, influenza vaccine, there's no other vaccine that has the uh, thimerosal uh, ingredient in it. Then there's uh, formaldehyde, which in large quantities is a carcinogen. Um, however, it is a naturally occurring um, uh, substance in our bodies. And uh, it is something that is used in a few vaccines. And just to give you reference, um, the highest amount of formaldehyde present in any vaccine is about 0.2 um, milligrams per dose. Um, the average two-month-old baby would have about 1.1 milligrams of formaldehyde circulating in their body at any given moment, okay? Wow. Um, so the amount of formaldehyde found in vaccines is tiny, 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 and, and would not at all be considered um, a, a toxic dose. Then there's uh, aluminum, which is used uh, to, to stabilize some vaccines. Um, some people are afraid that aluminum can cause, um, you know, kidney failure. There's been some fear that aluminum can cause uh, like dementia. Um, uh, but again, it's, you know, in, in toxic amounts, yeah, you know, maybe it can, can cause a problem, but um, it is naturally occurring. It's, it's in our plant and soil and air and water. And um, so to give you reference, a baby might have about five nanograms uh, of aluminum in their bloodstream, um, but the quantity of aluminum found in vaccines is so small uh, that it doesn't even cause any notable uh, rise in the amount of aluminum found in our tiniest patients. So, you know, it's, it's just a little bit. 
um, you know, people have questions about antibiotics, you know, and again, you know, reusing anything, high uh, toxic quantities of, of anything, including food, including Cheetos, you know, uh, and sugar uh, can be bad for your health. But a, a lot of work goes into making sure that the amounts that we put in our vaccines and in our medicines um, is low enough that it, 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 act, it doesn't hurt it, but that it actually helps people um, because it helps make the, the vaccine delivery um, safe and stable. Right. I mean, you can absolutely overdose on any medication, but most medications or all medications arguably are are there to keep you safe and to um, to help make you healthy. And so it's the same the same with vaccines. So I'm glad you touched on all of these very important points. I feel like we could probably go on for another hour or two discussing this subject. Um, <laughs> but since we probably should let our listeners go, um, is there anything else you want to add? Any touch points? you feel like uh, you ha you haven't gotten to that would be uh, good takeaways for our audience? Well, my main takeaway is that people should be vaccinated. Society should be vaccinated. And if you are someone who has not had your shots in a long time, or if you haven't talked to your doctor about vaccines in a while, I strongly encourage you to make an appointment, talk to your doctor about the pros and cons uh, vaccines for you, you might find that there really is no downside uh, to vaccinating um, in, in your case. And so um, if you can vaccinate yourself, it, I consider it an act of love for society. You are protecting the weakest among us and you are protecting yourself long term. And uh, you're just you're you're doing a good thing uh, for, for all mankind. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Triller, for being with us and for all of your words of wisdom. We really appreciate you being here and we look forward to our next discussion. Thanks, Alexis.